Hey, this is Neil Milliken. I'm Global Head of Accessibility at Atos and co-founder of Access Chat. That's A-X-S-C-H-A-T. If you're wanting to learn how to embrace change and navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, Dennis Ginnitsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey, welcome to the show, Leadership is Changing. What we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Leaders everywhere confront similar obstacles because people are people, but everywhere you go, leaders are overwhelmed, disrupted, and under pressure. They run from email to email, meeting to meeting. Many leaders are not changing quick enough, which means they run the risk of becoming irrelevant and being left behind. The purpose of the show is taking our listeners' leadership to another level by finding their balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. I believe we don't have enough effective leaders in the world today, and if we can get the leaders to step up and lead change, then they can inspire real change. It is now time to adapt in our fast-moving world, and uh, listeners, hi, welcome to the show. I've got a guest today, and his name is uh, Neil Milliken, and he is the Global Head of Accessibility at ATOS, an IT organization, and invited expert for the W3C Cognitive Accessibility Task Force. He's a member of the ATOS scientific community and ATOS distinguished uh, expert. He's the co-finder of AXS Chat, Europe's largest Twitter chat with a focus on accessibility and inclusion. Neil is a member of the board of directors for the World Institute on Disability and a non-exec at Genius uh, Within and the chair of the diversity board for the Institute of Coding. Neil was named the top 10 of the Shore Trust Disability Power 100 list in 2018 and was named DNI Practitioner of the Year in 2019 Disability Smart Awards. Neil, hey, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much and sorry for making you read all of that stuff out. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's all good. Hey, yeah, thank you. So um, the, the things that I've just shared out there and some of the uh, the acronyms and that, do you want to just explain a little bit about your background a little bit further about who you are? And Yeah, so um, I'm uh, a historian, not a technologist. By, by by background, uh, I, I just sort of I, I took the, the arts. Uh, was actually you know really keen on the arts and music. Uh, spent the first I guess ten years of my career working in music and video business. Um, not brilliantly successfully. Had my own record label. Um, did some um, did some other sort of stuff. Working for export and ended up working for dot com companies. Had a great time, travelled the world, uh, and then, of course, the, the initial dot-com boom went bust, and um, found myself looking for work, and I fell into working in technology uh, that was supporting people with dyslexia. And I was living in Cambridge at, at the time, and um, I went and, and had three weeks' work, which turned into nine years. Um, so I, I went for a short-term project and ended up working for uh, this company for nine years, and they specialised in in producing technology for to help people with dyslexia, specific learning difficulties, and other people with disabilities. And I, I 
developed a real passion for technology during this time because when I grew up, I, I, I had, you know, I used technology a little bit, but I was just on the cusp of that generation where you, you used it every day and it was in the education system. So I went through my degree without, you know, without computers, uh, which would you know, probably be your experience too. But my sister, who's only a few years younger than me, you know, taught computers in school, used them in, in uni, all the rest of it. So for me, actually finding that I could use a computer was a damn conversion. Dyslexia runs in the family. I'm I'm dyslexic and and ADHD, so I just sort of fell into my niche. It was you know it's one of those jobs where you you don't grow up thinking you know what I want to be an assistive technologist because it didn't exist when I when I was growing up. But that's actually you know I'm, I'm I love doing what I do because technology has this amazing power to include people. So about ten years ago this week because it's my 10th work anniversary in my current continuous employment, I went and joined Siemens IT Solutions, working on the BBC account, providing assistive tech to them. Siemens IT got bought by Atos, and I've been there, and we've been sort of developing what what we do over over that decade. And uh, now I'm globally responsible for sort of all of the sort of disability inclusion piece, and particularly the technology wrapper around that so both for our employees but also you know how we deal with stakeholders you know reporting back to our board doing all of the stuff for our customers as well so um and and then outside of that can't get enough of it so i started this twitter chat with uh with a colleague and and, and a friend uh deborah Ruha, who's out in the states we run that every week it's uh it's been rolling for nearly six years so I'm used to doing podcasts. I've got about 200 videos out there. And, and yeah, a large community of people around the globe that are sort of committed to making the world better, either through their actions or through technology. Yeah, great. And, and so you talked about before about the passion in that and then the technology has really helped you bring that out. What, what, what has probably been one of the biggest things, you know, there's probably been many, right? Um, but what, what would be one of the things that was probably one of the biggest sort of achievements that you've seen somebody going from some situation to another one and done really, really well? And how's technology helped them do that? Uh, well, we provide technology that, that gives people fundamental access to computing and therefore fundamental access to jobs and participation in society. You know, so uh, we we work with people who are blind and you know, provide them with screen readers and, and text-to-speech technology. I use speech recognition systems. So my MBA, I did using assistive tech, which was great. I dictate a lot of the stuff that, that my longer pieces of text. Of course, I can type, I can read. That's one of the myths about dyslexia. But it's easier and you, you access a higher vocabulary if, if you're talking. Yeah? Much easier hmm. to talk. So I, I dictated most of my stuff. So that's... That's the technology for me that that really made a big difference. That and um, Microsoft Outlook, <laughs> just because the other part of, of, of me is ADHD, uh, and so ADHD and dyslexia equals abysmal poor, uh, abysmally poor time management, and like so, you just ha- either have no focus or hyper focus, and that means uh, that without technology, there would have been no chance of me turning up to record this interview with you on the phone. 
Yeah, great. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing to see how technology has really, really helped you, but it also helps others as well as an enabler, as an enabler to really get out there and do what you need to do, and mm-hmm. and which is really great to see. And um, actually, you know, I, I know of somebody who actually used the dictating side of things to write a book. In fact, several books that he's he's written, which is really good. And and what he does is because he's stuck in traffic. He actually will talk, and then it's actually you know dictating and actually typing, and uh, it's coming out with the words, and then so he just needs to review it and gives it to the editor, and they make it look great, and then uh, he's away, which is all good. So yeah, good. Hey, um, here's a question for you because I've got a few of them, yes. and uh, one of the questions I've got for you is, I know you've probably got several, but who's your favourite leader? Now this person can be alive or from history, so who's your favourite leader and why? Okay, so. I'm not going to go for history. I'm going to go for someone current, and her name is Caroline Casey. She's the founder of the Valuable 500, um, and that organization is one that, that Atos are members of. Uh, it was founded to put disability on the leadership agenda, and it's a, a, a CEO-led movement. So she's backed by Paul Polman, who is the former CEO and chairman of Unilever, and Caroline's absolutely nuts in the best possible way. I consider her a great friend, but she started the whole thing by uh, um, riding a horse across Colombia to arrive on stage at One Young World, which is like the junior Davos, to launch this thing. And and, and to give it a bit of context, Caroline's visually impaired, but uh, hasn't actually sort of let that stop her. In fact, it, it powers her forward. So she's brought together hundreds of CEOs to, to really make a difference because actually what we're seeing right now is that governments aren't the ones making the difference. You know, maybe in New Zealand where you are, you've got responsible politicians, but around the world, we don't have them. There's mm. a, there's a, a lack of, of responsibility and leadership in politics. Whereas I think that there is certainly the, the the opportunity for leadership in business. And that's really one of the things that keeps me working for large organizations is that that we can leverage our, our procurement power to make a difference because the you know internationally you can you can do stuff as large organizations. And so Caroline's un- understood that and understood the, the multiplier effect of that and has through the force of her personality brought hundreds of global CEOs together and engaged World Economic Forum, Nippon Foundation to, to create this vehicle for change. Amazing. So, so she's the person that I you know, have the most admiration for. Yeah, yeah, great. And, and you know, the, the ability to be able to scale as well and utilize organizations like you're the one that you're working with and uh, able to help others as well, tremendous. And great to see that uh, and what she's doing. So thank you for sharing that. Hey, the other thing I would ask you here is, the, the name of the show is Leadership is Changing. Well, what does that mean for you when I say that statement? So I, I believe that we, as leaders, need to be more human. Mm. Uh, I, I think that for far too long, we've had this sort of Taylorian management view of what leadership should be, you know, time and motion, you know, command and control. And actually, it's about trust. If you really want a well-performing organization, it's about trust. It's about being human. It's why I talk about my disabilities, because they're hidden. No one need know. They may just think I'm an idiot, right, because I'm late or, or spell things wrong. But I talk about it because I believe that that's a leadership issue. And if I want people to change, then I need to be part of that and I need to lead by example. And I think that 
that actually when we show our humanity and our, our fallibility and we talk about it, then that makes people believe in us as human beings and want to engage with us. Because I believe that, that we, we are only going to bring forward businesses through consensus and, and, and the will of our employee base. Yeah. So it's like you humanize and uh, you, know, you, you show the human side of you, as you said. There's the vulnerability side of it as well that's been shown. But then uh, I think that's with, with all of that combination, that's where the trust is actually formed. Yeah. And I think that's just a beautiful combination, right, that it all comes together. So more or less people can relate to you rather than being that thing out there as a leader, the command and control, as you're saying. But not everyone can relate to that. But if you are human and being you, it's amazing what will actually happen. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that you can motivate through fear for a long period of time. You can do it for a short period of time. You can, you can force your will upon people. But long term, it, it, it won't work. So you either have you know, massive employee churn and terrible engagement and, and low morale, which has an impact on your, on your company, or people just sort of stop doing what you want to do. Uh, and so you have to bring <laughs> yeah. people along with you. And I think that's, that's really key in, in an area like I'm in, which has not been flavor of the month. I've had to use persuasion to get this onto the leadership agenda. Because it, you know, people don't perceive, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a top money-making item. And CSR, much higher up the agenda now this decade than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I started doing assistive tech. But, um, but actually, I, I, I had to persuade people. Uh, and that means that you have to be human, you have to be relatable, and you have to talk in the language that they understand. So if you're doing your business case to your, your C-suite, then you have to talk to them. In, in their language, but equally, if you're you're talking to people at the coalface, you need to be talking in their language. There's no point using acronyms and management speak the whole time. Yeah, so just to the audience, in other words, who's in front of you, and then make sure you adjust to them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I use, I mean, uh, for a lot of organizations, you know, the disability side and the inclusion, I, I mean, for some of them, I'm sure that there is a tick in the box and they're just doing something there for, to get that tick in the box. But where I think it's actually more than that, right? I mean, it's, the, well, how do you look at it with, with, uh, with the companies that you see, what you're seeing in the industry around the disability and so forth? So let's be clear, it's not a niche issue. There are between 1 and 1 1.3 billion people in the world with a disability. It's so that's either India, the population of either India or China. So who wouldn't want to address a, a cohort of the population of that size? It's crazy not to. Then as, as, as societies, we also are aging rapidly. So we have this rapidly aging global population. We need to deal with the mega trend of that because what we've also got is like this inverted pyramid where the older people who we traditionally supported through the, the sort of the financial contributions of the younger people, yep. it's not going to work anymore because there are more older people than there are younger people. And the younger people are more indebted than the older people. So then we have to find ways to enable the older people to be active and self-supporting and, and make society sustainable. Now, that has huge economic value. Uh, Gartner estimated that the global disability market is worth something like $8 trillion. 
Now, that's a, a sort of halo, but it's still a huge sum of money. And it's, as it, you know, it's, it's like the defense budget for, for a, a, a couple of large com- countries. Right? So, mm. so, so that kind of money should interest businesses. So these people are, are around us. They're in our companies. They're people like me. It's the only diversity group that any of us can join at any time in our lives. It's intersectional and pretty much if you live long enough, you're pretty much 100% guaranteed to end up with a disability because age and disability are interrelated. So, so that's, that's why it's, it, it's, it's kind of worth engaging. But then also, actually, people have this kind of idea that you want it to be a charitable thing. I have no problem with making good money out of doing good things. And I think that, that businesses can have viable business models doing good stuff. Yeah. Why is it only okay for businesses to make money doing bad things? Why why should we mm. make more money out of destroying the planet than building it up? I th- I think that, and that is where leadership and mindsets and 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 the global consciousness is changing, right? We're, to bring it back to your the theme of your podcast, that's where the real change is happening because I think that there there is a a real change in people's mindsets about we need to do something different we need to do business different and we need to restructure our society and i think that covid19 has probably just pressed the accelerator pedal on that yep yep totally agree and uh yeah so leaders mindsets and people looking at things differently do you know um i so you you may not know neil but uh, some of my listeners do know and and that is i went through a period of time whereby my my voice became very horse and long story short after so many years they found the tumor on my left vocal cord and for me a lot of it was this is my tool to be able to speak and do the executive coaching the facilitation the podcast and so forth uh it's not a hammer it's not a computer it's not a printer it's the voice and so there was no support groups in our area or actually in the country around voice dysphonia that we could see and so Trying to do that and still working for a large global corporate and and then struggling at times, it was really really quite interesting to see and actually experience. So I think um, you know there's a guy that's got talent, as according to the people I work with, who are saying yeah, but yeah, okay, he's got a raspy voice. Um, but then it was for me emotionally to go through that was quite hard. But then you know we just we as a team looked at it, we addressed it, we got on with it, and uh, moved forward with it, which was really quite good to have that kind of support where I know there's a whole lot of other leaders who don't support people with the disabilities and so forth. And I think it's really quite interesting how you, you're talking about the leader's mindset. We need to understand things. We need to do things. We need to do it. It's okay to do it. But the leader's mindset may need to change around some things as well going forward. Hence, yes. leadership is changing. Mm. Neil, how, how has your business or industry changed and what demand has that put on you or your leadership team? I think that there's multiple layers to that. So. Definitely, there's been increasing digitization of everything. Mm-hmm. Atos in general has, as a digital company, as an integrator of systems and provider of services, has you know, been riding that wave uh, and driving it to a certain extent. I do think that there is suddenly, because of COVID, this whole sort of work from home thing, but we've had this remote working culture within our organization for, for many years. I've actually been remote working for the last six, seven years. Mm-hmm. So when COVID hit, 
actually, it didn't change much. I, I already had my home office set up. My computer was there. The broadband was there. It normally doesn't drop out, but uh, just on this podcast. So that wasn't much of a change. The change for me has been around actually the intensity of what's happened in the last few months because everybody now wants to talk to everybody all the time because they can't have those water cooler conversations. Right. So I think some of the intimacy has changed. You've also got issues around trust again. So oh. I think that, that businesses that trust their employees were quite to get on with stuff that were structured for, for remote working, that understood that trust is important and allowed employees to get on adjusted far quicker to what's happened than the industries that that didn't trust their employees that that wanted to monitor the whole time i do also think that there is now a whole cottage industry in in remote monitoring people and that's quite sinister so mm. the 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 stuff that companies can force on you to to force your camera on to be looking at what you're doing the whole time actually if you have flexible working that shouldn't mean that you're nailed to your desk at home. It should be results-driven. You know, I don't really care how many hours my my uh, my colleagues work. I care about outcomes, and and I think that where we want to get to is more organisations caring about outcomes. But the, and and I I hope that there's going to be an acceleration of that. What I see is that outcomes are becoming more important than just shareholder value. Because I think that shareholder value has, to a certain extent, had a pernicious effect because it's prioritizing the, the outcomes for one small group of people over the outcomes for society as a whole. Right. And that's caused actually huge schisms and disruptions. It's powering some of the, the real angst and trouble that we have in our societies at, at, at large now. So I think that, that where businesses start to take a, a more stakeholder value, a, a more balanced approach, then, then, then that's really important. And that's one of the things that actually makes me proud about working for Atos is that we have a statement of purpose, that we do joint reporting. So we don't just report on our financials. We, we do all of the stuff around our social impact, our environmental impact, and all the rest of it. So, so that kind of stuff, I think all companies should be doing. Right. Because we, we live in a world of finite resources. We live in a world which is full of human beings. And therefore, businesses are part of society and need to be socially responsible. Yep. And then the other thing too, I mean, what you said as well is about the trust. Those uh, organisations that had the high trust were able to uh, pivot, adapt real quick, got out there, did things, which is great. But yeah, then, then the, high, the trust as well is again allowing the employees to get on with things and being focused on outcomes rather than being focused on just ticking the box for stakeholders or whatever else that might mean or say and that so forth, which is great. So it's a balanced approach is really, really good for that to happen. Um, if there's one thing that you could change in business as a leader today, what would what would it be? So I would I would like to see more openness amongst our top leaders. I, uh, that that authenticity that we talked about at the top. Yep. I, I think that people talking about them themselves and, and being slightly less curated. Yeah, it's a bit like your, your your social media profiles. You always put out your your best self, and and that's kind of created this this 
social anxiety amongst people because you compare your worst self with everyone else's projected best self. And, and I think that needs to change. I mean, today you've talked about some of your vulnerabilities, and I think that, that, that actually vulnerabilities are, can also be our strengths. And I, I would like to see more of that in leadership, that genuine leadership, that human, humanity in leadership. Yeah, vulnerabilities are our strengths uh, as leaders, yeah. and showing that. Yeah, great, very good. Yeah, really good. Hey, um, I know you'd made you touched on it before as well, and and that is how has employees' expectations changed of late? Yeah, well, um, I I do think that they they're expecting much more flexibility. They are expecting their own organisations to be more responsible. We see this particularly with you know. Uh, Generation Z and, and, and the younger generations, we as an organization talk about our employee value proposition. If we want to attract talent and retain that talent, then we need to be doing stuff that isn't just about what their take-home pay is. Yep. It's about what are they adding to society because they, they're they less concerned about that because to a certain extent, they're in such a bad financial position compared to my parents or their grandparents or the other generations that preceded them, that, that the money's almost become irrelevant. Unless you're a super high earner, you're going to be in a position where housing's really expensive, the cost of living's really expensive, your pension's <laughs> non-existent. So, so, so then they're really interested in, well, what's the organization doing? How's it contributing? How's it going to make a better world? And there is that sort of change in focus about what it means to be employed. Yeah, yeah. And what impact can I have, but also what impact is the organization having yeah. on society, yeah. which is which is great, yeah. Uh, very good. And I think the, you know, the them looking for more flexibility is really important. I think it ties in beautifully with with working from home at the moment because it gives us that flexibility. But I do think that there's a lot of people who still struggle with that flexibility, the ability to come home, work from home. And I know that you've said that you've been doing that for years as well. When you're working at home, how do you how do you manage to balance between working and that trans transition from, say, the bedroom or the kitchen into the office area and back into the family life again every day? How, how do you manage the transition? Because I think for some people, they look up, and next minute it's 8 p.m. at night, and gosh, I haven't even had lunch yet. Um, I'm a slave to my stomach, so that's not a problem. <laughs> I mean, proximity to the kitchen was a problem for me when I first started. You know, I, I piled on the weight because I, I was, uh, I was close to food the whole time. But, right. um, but I, I, th I think you do have to sort of set yourself a rhythm. I'm actually not the best example because I have all of these out of work work activities too. So, but I do break up my day and I take time to exercise and I take time to spend time in the garden and tear myself away from my screen not as much as my wife would like uh, I'm addicted to to my mobile phone I'm addicted to social media I run a, a side business and sort of community on social media so I'm I'm immersed in it I'm also because of ADHD ADHD essentially your brain's wired differently and you have a dopamine deficiency so all of these social media things which release micro rushes of dopamine are like <laughs> They're, they're you know, like uh, digital crack for, for an ADHD. <laughs> right. Keep scrolling. So, yep. so um, I'm not the best example of, of a uh, you know of a work life 
balance. So I, I I know that and I know myself, but I do then take take time to take time out. And I do think that exercise is is hugely important because we're so sedentary and it's so easy to be sedentary. The other thing is I'm privileged to be working in a in a in a decent environment where I can close the door on my office so I can I'm not working as a lot of people are right now from the sofa with a kid or two kids balanced yep. on their lap and a dog around their feet and uh, maybe their partner also working from home yeah that that's very different from having a dedicated home office set up sure yeah totally different. Uh, so you know having that makes it much more plausible to do long term yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true, and it, it, it must be very difficult for some people too at the moment with the way that they're working, um, and because of the family and the kids, everyone around them. Not great to be together as a family. That's a great thing, but then if you're trying to do work, trying to do conference calls, and uh, it's just a little bit hard. Yeah. So having that dedicated space, but not everyone has the space no. to have a dedicated office, right? So that's that's um, a little bit hard on them too. No, but I I think that this is going to be one of the fundamental changes in how we work as businesses over the next few years by working from home not always working from home i think there's going to be a blend i think at the moment everyone's going oh yeah the whole world's going to be working from home the whole time no we've been coping from home during a crisis i'm quoting someone who i can't remember but but essentially that's what we're doing right it's very different from having a good homework set up and not everyone's going to have that we have thirty thousand colleagues in india where a lot of them don't have that space, don't have that luxury, much harder on them than me with my privileged, you know, uh, Western first world house, garden, all the rest of it. So yep. I think we're going to need localized hubs, meeting spaces. I think that not not necessarily the we work kind of things, because I think again that was maybe a little bit sort of over promoted and venture capital coming in and pushing it. But I do think there are going to be maybe smaller hubs and we're going to need to find places where we can have that communality again because that's not the same right now you know zoom and teams calls and all the rest of it they're uh, an okay substitute for for the short term mm-hmm. but it's it's not the same as having proximity it's not the same as be, being able to have those off the clock cuff conversations that those like snap moments yep and have that community feel for sure yeah yeah i actually think there's that there's a terminology i use and i heard years ago um and that was with higher higher the t- uh, the tech higher the touch and we need more of that touch and that more of that stuff happening and zoom as you say can zoom teams whatever it is skype whatever you use whatever tool it is it's a tool but it can only do so much as well yeah hey neil um what makes a leader successful today in this fast-paced ever-changing world that's someone that listens. Uh, I, I think that, that a leader observes and listens before taking action. A lot of people, I think, believe that leaders are, are men or women of action, but the action should come and be an appropriate action. Mm. And to understand what's appropriate, you need to take that time to, to sort of understand your surroundings and the motivations of the people that you're leading. So you mean more like the being having a more informed scenarios, and then you can make or take the action or decisions based on that being informed well. Yes, and I, there are times where you need to just react. Sure, but there are a lot of times where actually consultation 
being part of a group and then taking those decisions is more appropriate. Yeah, and I think being curious as well as a leader to understand and yes. learn more, I think it would be ideal for sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's here's a question for you now. It's probably going to get you out your crystal ball here and start thinking about the future and so forth. And I'm not going to ask you what the winning lotto numbers are. It's not that, that's not the question. The question here is, where do you see leadership being in, say, five years from now? I think that leadership is going to become, and, and, and we're on a, a journey here, and it's not going to be completed in five years, it's going to become more collaborative. So uh, at the moment, we have this whole zero-sum game approach to business a lot of the time, and that's not working. And we need to be able to work together more. And, and there are ways that we can operate in cooperation. Mm-hmm. That, that we can cooperate up to the line where we need to compete. And, and, I, and I think we're going to go and see more and more of this as technology becomes more complex, as society becomes more complex as a result of all of the changes that have happened, that we need to work together much more and that, that leaders will start to cooperate and collaborate more. Yeah, I've seen of late, uh, and maybe this is what you're talking about, and I, and I love it, and maybe it's more collaborative leadership is what we're talking about. Yeah. And that is whereby you might see two organizations that do compete in the market, but at times in some of the sales bids they work, bids they work on, projects that a customer might need, they actually may team up and go together as a single offering versus being two com- competitive offerings. And so is, is that what you're talking about, some working together more yeah, like that? Yeah. So, so I, I think that there's some of that, and then there's also the, sort of addressing the big, the the big issues where where actually you know society benefits, uh, and and therefore, and and that's the bit that I spend my working life working on is trying to bring these organisations together, yeah, you know, either through our supply chain or through our customer base, you know, um, is actually engaging with the C-suites in these organisations to understand that oh yeah we can collaborate on this. So, for example, one area we're collaborating on is is teaching the people the skills and building the skills to support all of these technologies, to support people as they age, to support digital inclusion. Because why should we do that as one company or lots of separate companies? We can come together that. There's mutual benefit in that. No one one is losing by us working together. And we all gain. Yeah, no one loses by us working together. Beautiful. Thank you. Great way to, to end there. And so, Neil, hey, look, thank you for joining us on the show today. If our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where, where should they go? For the most immediate response, Twitter. Twitter. I'm at Neil Milliken on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on all the social networks. But Twitter's where I, I do my most stuff. It's the most open of networks. And, and that's why I love it so much. Yep. It's because you can just have a direct conversation with people. Whereas everything else is curated, Twitter is just open. So it's how um, how we done a lot of the stuff and brought business leaders on is just by asking them. Yeah. Go and have a conversation with someone. Yeah. So it's live, it's raw, but go and ask them some questions and have yeah. a conversation. Yeah. 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 So it's at, at Neil Milliken and it's N-E-I-L-M-I-L-L-I-K-E-N yep. at, on Twitter. Yeah, we'll get that put into the show notes. But um, yeah, so hey, Neil, thank you very much for joining us on the on the show today. So what we as leaders know to be true is that change is constant. Change is incredibly scary, especially with the unknown, the unfamiliar territory. And it's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing. Hey, let's just look out for the episodes as they're being released. Download them, have a listen, put a review and put a rating. And uh, feel free to share it with your network. 
Hey, if there's any feedback you'd like to give me on the show, or if there's a question you'd like me to ask my guests, or if there's a question you want to ask me on the Ask Dennis episode that happens once a week, which is a freestyle Friday freestyle show, feel free uh, to send me an email, dennis at leadingchangepartners.com. Hey, listeners, also check out the Facebook group. Leadership is changing, and uh, look forward to seeing you on there and, and joining that group and um, sharing some of your insights and thoughts and experiences with us as well. Team, great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world.